0: rest of us, I invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Joel, book of Joel, uh, Joel 2, 12 through 20, if you're using the Red Q Bible in front of you, that's on 872, 872, Joel chapter 2, verse 12 through 20. Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning, and rend your hearts, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Who knows whether he will not turn and relent and leave a blessing behind him a grain offering, and a drink offering for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, assemble the elders, gather the children, even nursing infants, let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the uh, vestibule and the altar, let the priests, the ministers of the Lord, weep and say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage a reproach, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity upon his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold, I am sending to you grain, wine, and oil, and you will be satisfied." And I will no more make your approach among the nations. I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him into a parched and desolate land, his vanguard into the eastern sea, and his rearguard into the western sea, and the stench and the foul smell of him will rise, for he has done great things. Now I want to ask you, how is it that you make decisions, important decisions that you, you have to make? For yourself or maybe for your family uh, typically people make decisions uh, using a couple of tools they're not usually haphazard if it's a pretty significant and weighted decision you've got to make you use more than one tool in your toolbox to try to help you make a decision and not every tool though is suitable for the job i mean you might have a favorite tool to make a decision with but like like a hammer a hammer is not good for every decision that we make. Uh, Sometimes uh, we actually, we ought to be using these three types of tools. Uh, Intuition is one tool that probably shouldn't be used in isolation from reason. Uh, And reason and intuition also shouldn't be used independently of faith. Uh, Actually, all three typically are used within decision making. And uh, we may also have a bias, though, towards which tool we like to use. For example, in my toolbox at home, I like—I uh, have a pair of Klein channel locks that I like to use, but they're not suitable for everything. I have Lyman's pliers. I also have wire strippers. I actually like Klein tools; uh, they make some quality stuff. But some of us may be disposed emotionally to use certain tools to make decisions more than others. Some, for example, use intuition or their gut feeling. They just—they just—it. They have a gut sense that this is what they ought to do. Now, others are analytical, and we tend to gravitate towards we've we've thought it through. These are the reasons. One, two, three equals, and I'm not good at math, so. But whether a person will use one of those tools, they maybe unconsciously will incorporate faith as part of that decision-making process. Uh, They put a lot of faith in perhaps their intuition or their ability to reason. And so people do use those tools in their decision making. I want to introduce you to a uh, a, a historic tool that was used to encourage people to make a decision for God. Uh, Blaise Pascal famously suggested that people decide whether god exists or not and when they do so they're making a bet they're making a wager they're making a decision of how to live their life whether or not god exists or he doesn't exist and under those conditions if a person believes for example that the christian god does exist then in the end they they will either receive eternal happiness or not So even if a person were to believe in the Christian God, and God actually in the end doesn't exist, they really haven't, they haven't really lost anything. But if they do believe in a Christian God and he doesn't exist, they might see, they might have a few inconveniences in this life because they're trying to live a a moral kind of life, and it may cramp their style in this life, but in the end it really won't really affect them that much. Yet, if a person does not believe in a Christian God and he ends up existing, that's a terrible conclusion. And so Pascal said, hey, you know, this is what he said. He said, let us weigh the gain and the loss in the wagering that God is. Let us estimate these two chances. If you gain, you gain all. If you lose, you lose nothing. So wager then, Without hesitation, that he is. So good, some good logic in that. Uh, Pascal's wager, as it was known, incorporates actually faith into the reason decision-making process. Now, some may not like that process; they like the intuition side. And so, sometimes when people experience suffering in this world, it may cause them to believe that God does not exist. They do so by intuition. Their gut feeling about suffering leads them to believe that perhaps God doesn't exist. Yet there's something really remarkable, is that on the other hand, there are some people who do suffer, who also believe that the cross of Jesus Christ demonstrates that he is sympathetic with our suffering and they choose to believe in spite of the evil if you will in the world that there is a compassionate god who identifies with their suffering in that sense there is faith being applied to intuition there's also faith being applied to revelation and so i you know we make a lot of these decisions in life and you know we can make some very basic day-to-day types of decisions based on faith i mean you all came in here Did anyone check to see if the pew would fall over before you sat in it? You did so on faith. But it was not naked faith. There was reason implied. Every week you've come in here, it has held you up, so why wouldn't it? Right? I don't want you to uh, wager, actually, on those little day-to-day things, because that can exhaust you. If you have to stop and think about everything that you have making decisions in your life, you'll you'll be a pooped puppy at the end of the day. But what I do want to encourage you is for you to wager on the reliability of God to respond to you when you cast all your care upon him, when you cast all your anxiety, all of your regrets, all of your sins, and you place that all on him. I want you to see him as being entirely reliable. And so I want you to take home today, hopefully, that God's mercy and compassion are worth betting on. God's mercy, His compassion, are worth betting on. And so verse 12 to 14, uh, I pick up the theme of that wager and I call it the prodigal's wager. The prodigal's wager. Now in... Verse 12 to 14, there is this plea to even now turn and rend your heart and come to the Lord. I'm going to give you a little bit of a behind the scenes how I try to, you know, map out my preaching and preparation. Uh, I try to anticipate three months ahead. So if you come into the service and you're like, I think he's preaching at me, don't take it that way. I'm lining things up three months in ahead. And so when I do that, I I cut little pieces of the text. And I try to think through how much can I teach in a Sunday? How much is enough? Does it fit right? And I get a little title for it. And I lay that out. But then as I get closer, I start to realize I might have to make some adjustments. And last Sunday was one of those moments where we were preaching through a very gloomy text. And I knew, I knew that I couldn't just end the service there. I had to kind of come around the corner and, see, and kind of look in, steal my thunder from this week, and, and show you that we can put our hope in Christ no matter what trial or tribulation that is affecting us. And so I wanted us to see that God is merciful, and mercy is such a major theme that the Bible develops over time, and Jesus himself communicated the heart of his heavenly Father through the story of the prodigal son. I told that story last Sunday, knowing I was going to rob myself of my own thunder this week. But I think it's important to adjust. And so I want, though to you to recognize that the prodigal knew something that was true about his father. The prodigal, even though he did not want to stay underneath of the authority of his father, he used his reason and he was willing to bet that at a minimum his father would treat him as well as he treats his own servants. Through the years, that son had observed his heavenly father demonstrate kindness and compassion and mercy to his hired help. And so it was on the basis, he applied the tools of decision making, he, he had some reason that helped him come to this conclusion, he intuited that he knew his, his father in this way, and by faith, he took a journey of back to his father. What qualities did he see about his, his father that we can then take and apply to our heavenly father? Well, those qualities are found in verse 13. Verse 13, Joel uh, uses the qualities of who God is as a means to motivate us to to come to God with all of our hearts. Uh, There's four traits here in verse 13. He says, Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And he relents over disaster. Each of those lines are significant within the Jewish theology of who God is. In fact, they were rehearsed out loud to Moses when he was in Mount Sinai, when he came after he had found that the Israelites had broken the covenant even before they had gotten even started. Israel was just 40 days into this new relationship. It was as if they were baptized into the family through crossing the Red Sea. They were like there before the mountain. And they had just witnessed all the plagues of Egypt that were laid out. Uh, They were delivered, as it were, on eagles' wings and brought to uh, with great speed to Mount Sinai. And while they're there they break the covenant, they, they start to create gods out of, sil- out of gold and said, these are the gods that delivered you out of Egypt. And while Moses is in the mountain, the sound of, of tumult is down below, and so he goes down, he sees what's happening, he's horrified, he goes back up and he pleads with God and says, if it be possible, blot me out destroy me. Don't destroy these people who you have redeemed and brought out of Egypt. How's that going to look to all the other nations? And Moses was concerned for the reputation and honor of of God. And, And in that intervention, God said, I will not, for your sake, destroy these people. I will go with them because... Because I am gracious and merciful, I am slow to anger, I am relenting of disaster. Those were the things that were communicated in that moment as God's characteristic. I want us to visualize these characteristics this morning. I'm going slower on these four characteristics this morning. Um, And I want you to feel and sense how gracious and merciful our God is. Uh, the word translated "gracious here is used in the Old Testament only as an attribute of God. It's uniquely used for him alone. And it's particularly interesting how it's used in the context of the law in which when one someone when, when God who hears someone being oppressed, how he hears and responds to that person who's being vexed, particularly if they're in debt and someone's trying to abuse them. In the law, says this, if you take your neighbor's cloak in a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down, for that is, for that is his only covering. It's like he doesn't even have a house, he's, like, he's on the streets, he's homeless, and that cloak is all he has for his body. In what else shall he sleep? The law says. And then catch this. And if he cries unto me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. That word compassionate is the same word that we hear in Joel for the word gracious. He is gracious, he's compassionate. And what this tells us is that God hears the cry of the oppressed, even if oppression is even caused by one's own foolishness. You know, if they hadn't have gotten themselves to that point, that's not what God says. God is still compassionate to all his children, even the foolish ones. God is disposed to be merciful. Several times, you know, David blew it. Big time. One of the most obvious that we would come and think about was the adultery with another man's wife, and then to cover it up, he killed that man's wife, or killed the husband to cover it all up when a baby came. But there was another time in which David blew it, he was filled with pride. See, the law prohibited kings from numbering all of their military assets because God knew that that would fill a king with pride. He wanted them to rest wholly upon the Lord and trust him and not take stock of his own resources to wage war. David, knowing the law, did it anyway. He commanded a census, And after he did it, it was like he he did it and he got the information he wanted, but then his heart smote him and he realized, I have done something severely wrong here. And a prophet named Gad came to him with a message from the Lord and said to him, yes, David, you have done wrong. I am going to apply a punishment for the nation because you've done this. And at the end of 2 Samuel... Uh, David had the opportunity to pick either pestilence, that's like disease, or he could choose a foreign invader to come, or he could choose famine to afflict the land. And he, he, he really didn't really want to make the decision, but he, he wisely said this. He said, I'm in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great but let not me fall into the hand of man. And when the death angel was going and there was disease moving and the death angel miraculously was visible in the sky above Jerusalem, the Lord in that moment had compassion. And he said to the angel, he said, it is enough. Now stay your hand. That's remarkable. That's that's the character of our God. He is gracious to those who are afflicted, He is merciful to those who recognize their sins. He is gracious, He's merciful, but He's also slow to anger. God is slow to anger for one reason, at least, I believe, because He exists out of time, He is eternal, He has everything in His hands. He doesn't have to be in a hurry to bring about the judgment, but he will bring it. And that bothered Jonah, the prophet. Jonah tried to outrun God's sovereignty. It's such an ironic story, isn't it? It's, a, it's just a remarkable story because he, he goes and flees to the, to the other side of the world. He gets in a boat. God sends a storm, tosses the boat around. The men then toss him over, board. God brings a fish swallows them, spits him back up on shore. He's trying to outrun God. It's a really hilarious story of mercy in many ways. And yet what's so funny and ironic and sad at the same time is that when Nineveh repented of its sin, he was spitting mad. And this is what he said. Jonah 4, verse 1 through 3 says, "Oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee, for I knew that you were a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Please take my life for me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Think about how bitter and angry you'd have to be. How bitter and angry you'd have to be to be like wanting to die rather than God to be merciful. That's pretty warped. But how totally opposite of Moses? Moses was willing to have himself blotted out. How totally opposite of the Lord Jesus Christ who said in the garden, not my will, but yours be done. And even, Father, forgive them for they don't even know what they're doing. Wow. He is gracious, merciful, slow to anger. He is also abounding in steadfast love. Steadfast love describes a loyal love that's idealized within the marriage covenant. God's people had often provoked him. He was their, he was their, he was their husband, and she provoked him and yet he still cared for Israel and yearned to show them love in spite of their kicking at him. And it was a kind of love that wouldn't let, him, let them go at all. You know, it's the same kind of love and commitment that our Heavenly Father has to us through Jesus Christ. There is character there that's seen in the past, that's true in the present, and will be true in the future. Paul, observing this about his own people, not worthy of receiving this kind of relationship with with God, said this, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The answer is nothing is going to separate us from the love of Christ, because he is abounding in a steadfast love. But you know, there's a last characteristic that's so beautiful and appropriate for us sinners is that he is one who will relent. He will back up from the punishment that he has decreed. That last phrase in verse 13 in Joel um, can be a little bit confusing if you have a King James Bible. um, It says, he repenteth him of the evil. Now, the word repent has through the years taken on different connotations. And here uh, it's an unfortunate choice because it implies that God has a reason to confess his own sin in the matter and to turn away from it. That shouldn't be how we think about this. Rather, God is revoking a punishment out of compassion for a particular generation. For example, God can send a decree to Nineveh That will come to pass, but if it's delayed for one generation, God is not inconsistent in his intentions. And that's what happened to Nineveh 120 years later. The time of need for final punishment took place. So God was not inconsistent. He was offering mercy for a generation that that lived in Jonah's day. He is both consistent in his application, but he will he is merciful and that's something that's worth betting on he is all of these characteristics he will delay and it's remarkable because if you think back when jonah was was preaching in nineveh he said the exact same thing actually that joel says in verse 14 joel says who knows whether he will not turn and relent And that's exactly the same words that were used by Jonah to Ninevites. And this is the prodigal's wager. If this is true of our Heavenly Father, then by faith we can lay claim to His character to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so, verse 15 to 17 bring us into a call to action, to act upon this wager by faith in Christ, verse 15 to 17. Now, Christ had not yet been revealed in Joel's generation, but every sacrifice, every act of the priesthood represented the ultimate sacrifice that was coming, which was found in the cross of Jesus Christ. Paul tells us this in Romans chapter 10, Verse 4, he said, For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. The end of the law refers to the ultimate sacrifice. It's what everything was pointing to. It was like anticipating this final iteration. There would be no iterations after it. This is the final version. And so... Their situation looked like this. There was a trumpet being blown in verse uh, 15. There's this uh, blowing of the trumpet in Zion to consecrate a fast, call a solemn assembly, gather the people, consecrate the congregation, and assemble the elders. Gather the children, even the nursing infants. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Between the vestibule and the altar, let the, minister, uh, priests, the ministers of the Lord weep. And say, Spare your people, O Lord, and make not your heritage or approach a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, where is their God? Now, in the first chapter of Joel, we, we read a similar call to action over locusts that had been a form of judgment in their recent past. Here, Joel is looking into the future, and he's anticipating an even greater judgment to come. And the interesting fact here is that the first call to action was based on something that had happened in the past. This is a call to action based on something that's going to come in the future. And this brings us to our own day and our own situation. That was their situation. And this is what we read in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 10 verse 25 where the author Who's talking to a Jewish population that's fearful about enduring persecution, anticipating it might be easier to go back to my old way of Judaism. And he says this at the end, Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25, let us consider how to stir one another to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together, but all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is he talking about? He's talking about the coming day of the Lord, the one that was foretold by Joel, the one that's yet still to come. And as we gather with the body, we are acting in faith that we believe that, yes, judgment is coming, but also that God is merciful. We're believing and we're being salt and light, if you will, also praying that God would put off that coming judgment so that another generation might be saved. We don't know the day nor the hour, but when we gather with the body of Christ, we are coming to call upon the merciful nature of God. And so, it's important as we see little rumors and tremors and, and birth pains of things that are coming, that we don't flee from the body, but that we grab hold of the body and plead with God for His mercy for our community. We gather with the body of Christ. They gathered as the people of Christ, or people of God, excuse me. And so we don't gather in a temple made with hands, rather we gather as the body of Christ. Now when you were a kid, and some of you here are still kids, and some of you are kids at heart, but when you were a kid, did you ever intertwine your fingers like this? Go like this, pop, pop a steeple? Oh, there's doors, and look at all the people. Right? Every, yeah, okay. I heard a groan. <laughs> but I wanted you to to, to see the parallelism here, in the calling of people to gather, he, there's all kinds of groups of people coming into the church, or into the body, into the assembly back in the Old Testament era. And there's really, there's a multi-generational grouping here. There's the, the elders, there's the children, there's the, even the nursing infants. It's beautiful here, the infants in the service. Uh, young families don't ever feel Ashamed. It's a great feeling for us who have gone through those days. It's great to see you guys bringing your children to church. It's also great for newlyweds to be a part of a church family too. A multi-generational people calling out in faith. Now the last group is really striking because it, it, it suggests a really extreme emergency in Joel's day in which uh, even the, those who are basically on their honeymoon, are to leave the honeymoon and come and gather. And I, you know, and they're, they're, they're called to come to the congregation and to, to plead for mercy. Now, I can hear it now. Someone's going to say that pastor says you've got to be at church even on your honeymoon. Well, that's not what I'm saying. But if you were to see a mushroom cloud in the distance, yeah, you might want to start running. No man knows the day nor the hour of the return of the Lord. This is what I'm saying. Whether we are young or old, nursing children, the place to meet is with the people of God. A humble heart will gather with others. Pride will keep you from gathering with the body. If you believe, you must gather. This is what we're called to do as Christians. And when we gather, we call upon the name of the Lord. Now, I'm going to peek into verse 32. In Joel chapter 2, verse 32, it says, uh, and it's quoted by Paul in the book of Romans chapter 10, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Well, in verse 17, there is a kind of calling occurring. There is a, uh, a a calling by priests, ministers, standing in the vestibule between the vestibule and the altar. And I want to kind of show you a little bit of where they were standing and why that applies to us, and then also the content of their prayer. But first, they're standing between the vestibule and the altar. This was called the Holy Place, and I hope you can see that on the screen. The larger circle represents two columns at the entrance of the Holy Place. This was uh, the vestibule, if you will. The smaller circle is standing directly in front of the veil. On the other side of the veil is the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant lay. And that's where the, the presence, the Shekinah glory of God, resided above the cherubim's. But that smaller circle represents a small little uh, little altar of incense that was for daily prayers. And it's remarkable because this this place, actually, this vestibule, was a place that there had a major atrocity had taken place in the days of Zechariah. Jesus referred to this in his own day, and he said this to the Pharisees who were anticipating killing him. He said this to them, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? On you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth from the blood of the righteousness of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. That word sanctuary is vestibule in the altar. Jesus was saying that if the priesthood was willing to kill all the prophets, how much would be their guilt if they were to kill the very Son of God? As horrifying as it is to kill the messenger at the threshold of the Holy of Holies, God allowed His only begotten Son to be abused by the priesthood so that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord may be saved. No longer do we need a corrupt priesthood to mediate for us. We have been given access by the blood of Jesus Christ to the very Holy of Holies. We can come to the throne room of God in an instant of prayer. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. And what we do is we plead the covenant blood of Christ when we are calling out in agony and in pain. The prayer that's prescribed by Joel that these priests would say in that area is nearly the same words that Moses used when he tried to defend and protect his own people from the wrath of God. They, remember, blew it 40 days into their new relationship with God. And they had become wed to him. And they made those false idols and bowed down to them. And Moses interceded with the exact same line of argument. In the same way, we also make this line of argument. We say... For the glory of your name, forgive us. Be merciful to us. Do not allow us to kind of be removed from this world. Don't abandon your people for whom your son has died. Make your name famous. Forgive me of my sins so that I can go out and proclaim your name in the nation. When you've sinned mightily, what these priests are doing is they're instructed to argue with God upon the promises that He has made towards you. If God makes a promise to you, then by faith, argue with Him to relieve you and to forgive you of all your sin. Don't just walk away. Call upon His name and argue with him, and tell him to his face, you are a gracious and merciful God. You are slow to anger. You relent of your judgments. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Hebrews 7, verse 25 says, Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God, since he always lives. To make intercession for them. That is a remarkable promise. And that's a tool for us to use, to argue with God when we are under the weight of our own sinfulness, and to call upon Him. Now, there's a certainty in this wager as well. In the last couple of verses, 18 to 20, describe the certainty of the one upon whom we wager. There is a certainty. Verse 18 to 19, you know, the, Joel earlier pleads with them, you know, you know, call, rend your heart, he's gracious. And now we're, we're seeing the response here to the character that Joel, Joel uh, knows is there. Verse 18 says, And then the Lord became jealous for his land and had pity upon his people. The Lord answered and said to his people, Behold I am sending to you grain wine and oil and you will be satisfied and I will make no I will no more make you a reproach among the nations I will remove the northerner far from you and drive him away into the parched and desolate land his vanguard into the eastern sea his rear guard into the western sea and the stench and the foul smell of him will rise for he has done great things Now jealousy And pity are phrases that express his gracious and compassionate nature, his steadfast love. Uh, Jealousy, in most cases, is not appropriate for us as people to have. There's one exclusive domain in which jealousy is totally appropriate, and that is in the marriage covenant, because when we marry, we are no longer our own, but we belong to our spouse, and they have a right to our affections, Uh, we are not at liberty to just go out and love someone else on the side. There is an appropriate jealousy that is needed in that relationship because it also mirrors the very character and nature of God. God is jealous for our affections. And when He sees our affections returning towards Him, He is then filled with pity because He doesn't want to spurn you. He wants you to come back to Him. He loves you with an everlasting love. When our spouse is hurting, we ought to be hurting for our spouse. This is something that we owe them. This is something that's inherent in the qualities that we find in Jesus Christ. And though we are not our own, we are bought with a price. We are bought with the precious blood of Christ. God takes very seriously the death of his son for us, and so he, he, he's jealous for us. So much so that, like Jonah, if you are really his, you can't get away from him. You can run, but God's going to bring a whale and bring you back. And if I were a betting man, I would bet upon the promises of God to forgive you of your sins. Believe him when he says, you will seek me and you shall find me when you seek for me with all your heart. This, this text, these, these verse uh, nineteen twenty these these are turning points in the book of Joel. Turning points. Because now we see God lavishing his great love upon his people for whom he has committed himself. There's a renewal of fruitfulness in the land, verse 19 tells us. Uh, He's going to send grain, wine, and oil. There will be a restoration of their reputation. They will no longer be a reproach among the nations. And then in verse 20, I will remove the northerner. There will be a a repelling of invaders. There's a a desire to bless within the nature of God. And so while we hear that he needs to bring judgment for sin, he's wanting to bring you into a better place because he loves you. Don't allow his holiness to alarm you. Remember his passion, his compassion, his mercy, his desires for you. Joel here is telling us that we can cast all our cares upon him, for he cares for us. We can find rest through Jesus Christ. And there is implicit in this a question to us, why is it that we persist and trying to live our lives as if we can handle things on our own, with our own wisdom? Like why, do we, why do we think that we can get along in life? We have to ask ourselves periodically, how's that going? How's it going, trying to live according to your own wisdom? Real wisdom is this, it's found in relationship with Jesus Christ, where John says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Our greatest enemy is not a future apocalyptic army. Our greatest enemy isn't even the IRS. Our greatest enemy is sin and death. And he has conquered, he has risen triumphant, And he has defeated Satan, and we have nothing to fear. These two, all the armies of the earth, will be blown one day into the sea. And their stench and the smoke from them will go up before the eyes of God, and he will have glory over his enemies. But, you know, what's even greater than all of that is that our own sins can be buried in the deepest sea and then one day we will be forever with the lord the lord jesus christ desires to be your husband he desires to be your protector he desires to be your shield your hope your tower your shepherd and your shore defense rend your heart, come to him, bet on him. He's a wager worth making. Let's pray.